What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Normal Guy Lazy Eye Podcast presented by House Enterprise. As always, I'm your host, Jared Magazine, your neighborly normal guy with a lazy eye here connecting with incredible people who have unforgettable stories to tell. Today's episode is with a guest that I, when I saw this initial video of this person, I knew there was no way I wasn't going to reach out to her. I know that's a double negative, but the second I saw this video, I was like, she has to be on this show. Gabrielle Stone is an award-winning actress, an award-winning author of the incredible, wild, crazy, unforgettable book called Eat, Pray, FML. This is not Eat, Pray, Love. I want to make that very, very clear. This story is going to take you on turns and twists uh, that you have never seen before. I'm not going to give away too much, but... To go from a heartbreaking divorce to a heartbreaking breakup two days before you're going to go on a month-long trip to Europe with this person all in the same year is a wild and crazy story. Gabrielle obviously ends up telling this whole story, but she is here to talk today about that book, about how it all came to be, about the important topics of self-love and mental health, and it is an unbelievable interview probably probably one of my favorites honestly so without further ado please enjoy the one and only gabrielle stone this is the normal guy lazy eye podcast a true eye opening experience Another episode is here with another one-of-a-kind guest. Gabrielle Stone is an L.A. native author of the book Eat, Pray, FML and the Ridiculous Misadventures of a Single Girl. She is also an award-winning actress, director, and podcast host, a woman that can do it all. Gabby, thank you so much for coming on. How are you? Thank you. I'm so good, dude. Thanks for having me. Happy belated birthday, by the way. Any, did Thank you. Do you. <laughs> Absolutely. Did you do anything fun to celebrate? Yeah, we had um, a few people over at the house. You know, we we bought our house at the beginning of the pandemic, so we haven't really ever gotten to use it to entertain. Right. Um, so we we had some people over, did like a taco cart and margaritas and, uh, you know, 33, here we go. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. No, that, and like, it's always tough with like right around the holidays to celebrate a birthday. Cause like for me, I don't know for you, but like, just the holidays always seem like a logistical nightmare with getting, you know, going to see family and flying yes. around and all that stuff. So just nice to have like a nice, you know, everyone can come over, have some tacos. What's what more can you ask for? Yeah. And we did it really like, you know, we're starting it too, going till whenever, come when you want, right. leave when you want. It was very like, you know, unstructured, which was nice. <laughs> have one taco, eat all the tacos. We don't really Right. <laughs> right. I love it. So I think it's no surprise on how I found you on TikTok. This video now has over 57 million views. I can't wait to dive into the whole story. But first, I believe that everybody's story has a beginning. So I want to start with yours. You were born and raised just outside of LA in Woodland Hills, California, daughter of Dee Wallace and Christopher Stone. Your mother famously played the role of Mary Taylor in the movie E.T., but she's more maybe notorious known as the Scream Queen. Growing up in the Stone household, was acting like always something that was on, you know, on the table for you or in the cards for you? Is that something that you always wanted to do? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I 
had a pretty normal childhood. My parents, both being in the industry, did a really good job at making sure it wasn't this crazy Hollywood lifestyle. If one of them booked a job, the other one wouldn't take one, which is very hard to do um, in an industry where it's kind of like, take it as you get it. Um, And if anyone ever was shooting out of town for more than a week, the whole family went to go visit. So I got to travel to some really amazing places. But I also grew up on film sets. You know, I remember being in New Zealand when I was six years old and I was on the set of Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. And my mom was like, come here, honey, lick mommy's blood (laughs) off. It's just fake. It's fine. So I grew up on film sets. And when I, when I started acting, it kind of felt like a second home because of that. So it felt really comfortable to me. And I always said, you know, because my mom was, people were like, well, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I'd say, I'm going to be an actress, but It wasn't until I did my first project that I walked off that set and was like, oh, I don't want to go back to school or do anything else. Like, I get it now. (laughs) Right, right. And like, I mean, I I have to ask, you know, growing up with a mother who's done virtually every scary movie, do they scare you anymore? Or you're like, please, this is this is so normal now. (laughs) You know, the paranormal stuff doesn't scare me, but Mm -hmm. the shit that can really happen. Like when I saw The Strangers, I was like, I'm done. (laughs) <laughs> like, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever seen. It, the stuff that can really take place in our world, you know, that yeah. that frightens me. Like, they didn't they, re- like, right before the pandemic, I feel like they made a movie about, like, a global pandemic and, like, how it could wipe out half of the population. I'm sure. There, there's probably multiple of them, you yeah. know? Like. <laughs> yeah, I'd much rather, like, that could probably gets more to me than, like, the jump scares of, like, I don't know, something like the Annabelle or something like that. Oh, yeah, know. totally. <laughs> totally. Because that happens. And it's like, unfortunately, our world is filled with real life horrors and like, Mm. you know, that can really take place. It's terrifying. Absolutely. Now, feel free to share as much as you'd like or as little as you'd like here, but you did, you lost your father when you were six years old. How do you carry your dad's love for you and the love you had for your father in your everyday life today? Oh, what a great question. Yeah, I did. I lost my dad pretty traumatically. And it was actually during that shoot that Peter Jackson was filming in uh, New Zealand. So I was at home with my dad and my nanny at the time who was with us for years and years and years. And it's now a really dear friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And my mom was in New Zealand shooting. We had all just flown back from visiting for a while. And I woke up to go wake him up to watch morning cartoons and he wasn't in his room. And I raced into the bathroom and I saw him lying on the floor. So I was the one that actually found him, which was really traumatic at six years old. Um, And my poor nanny at the time, you know, was I think 23 and to deal with that, like, I can't even imagine my mom was on the next flight home. Peter Jackson was like such an amazing human. And we still hold him in such a high regard for this was just like, D go take care of your family and let us know when you can come back to finish, which is not normal in Hollywood. It's like, it doesn't really matter what happens in your life. Like the show must go on. Um, But I think as I got older and transitioned from acting into directing, that was always kind of, he was an actor, but he, he really found a passion in writing and directing. And so when I transitioned into that, my mom was like, Oh, okay. This is where your dad's stepping in now. Um, so I know, you know, after writing two books now and having a couple screenplays that have been shot and, uh, become award-winning screenplays. I, I know he would be very, very proud that I got that, uh, that side from him. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's just what baffles me. And it's just kind of, I I can't say I've gone through a similar instance or anything like that, but something in my life happened to me when I was six years old, when my parents separated. And it's what was interesting to me about like how it just resonates with you and how, even how young you were, like how much that meant to you. It doesn't matter. I feel like age is just a number as silly as that sounds, even at six, like something that, that traumatic or that, you know, earth shattering can be so impactful for a six-year-old it's not like you just pick up and you know you pick up the box of crayons the next day and you're you're good to go oh for sure I mean (laughs) I I write about that a lot in my book that that's the first moment where I developed a subconscious fear of abandonment Mm -hmm. and a subconscious belief of like when I love people they die and almost all of the stuff that has gone on in my life can somehow be traced back to that first giant loss Absolutely. And we'll get into, I know you said you, you kind of carry a piece of your dad and you're directing in the, in the screenplays that you're writing. We're going to get into how maybe your, a piece of your mother is in some of your writing as well, but we'll get to that. Um, from about 2006 to say about 2018, you were doing three, four, five projects a year. Did you ever get a feeling that, you know, like, do I want to be doing this for the rest of my life? Did, was there ever like, um, I guess like an actress burnout, you know, like how athletes have a burnout. Was there any sort of like, wow, this is becoming too much and I want to like take a quick pause or do something different? I don't think there was a burnout in the craft of it. I always loved when I was on set and when I was working, there was definitely a burnout of the hustle of what it takes to be an actor in LA because there's thousands and thousands of us and many of them are just as talented and look just as, you know, blonde or just as whatever have you. And I remember being like, you know, feeling a burnout on the process of auditioning and, you know, being told no and being really close to getting a project. And then it goes to the other girl that you were up against. And that is, is a lot. And it makes you have a really thick skin, which I think ended up serving me in, uh, in later years, but, (laughs) you know, doing all of the films that I was doing and, when I transitioned into directing as well, it really, that to me was like, this is where my life is going. Like, this is going to be my job for the rest of my life. I felt very fortunate that, you know, I didn't have a bunch of side hustles that acting was supporting me um, for years. And it's, while it brings some anxiety of book a job, book a job, book a job, um, you have to be really thankful for that because a lot of times you have to supplement your, your art with something that's actually paying your bills. Um, so it was, it was an interesting turn of events when my career shifted, uh, from solely acting and directing. Yeah. But so then what kind of piece of advice do you have for the one that's moving out to Hollywood or moving out to LA to pursue an acting career? Because, you know, I grew up in Southern Orange County and everyone wanted to be that LA, you know, Hollywood star. But then at least my parents gave me like the harsh realization of if you go try to do that, you're just going to become the next waiter at California Pizza Kitchen. (laughs) Like, like, So how do you tell that kid, that 16, 17, 18 year old, that's like, I'm packing my bags, I'm going to LA, which I feel like is such a common thing now, not even just acting or directing or filmmaking. It's like content creating, TikToking, whatever, maybe, but like, how do you tell them to stay driven, keep your head down and and really go after what you want here? I I would say, first of all, don't do it unless you're really (laughs) passionate about it, you know, like, cause it's not worth it. If it's not Mm -hmm. your literal dream. Um, and if it is, then make sure you are staying grounded in the process of doing it and really 
protect your heart while while moving forward through the process? You know, that's it's interesting that you didn't bring up like have a core group of friends because I feel like I've had a lot of actors and actresses and content creators on the show, and that's like one of the first things that they say, like have and like I know having a support group is important in this industry, but like well, in any industry, right? In yeah, any yeah, facet in, of in life, life period. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> But just like the like ha- like I love that yours is a little bit more like like being like with your within yourself rather than like leaning on everybody else because you know at the end of the day you're the one that's going to be doing this dream like everyone's going to be rooting for you sort of you know yeah. you're close friends but at the end of the day you're the one that's going to be chasing that paycheck so you well and at the end of the day you're the one that's getting told no and you're yeah. the one that's hearing the rejection and you're the one that's getting to experience the highs when you go on set you know so yes having friends to support you is amazing but i think it really starts from knowing within your soul like what you want to do and what your goal is Absolutely. So I'll give the audience for those that haven't read the book a little bit of a, a synopsis of the book. But Epre FML tells the story of Gabby's roller coaster of a romance where she found her now ex-husband cheating with a 19-year-old, filed for divorce, soon fell in love with a new man, booked a trip to Europe for a month and 48 hours before the flight, she was told that he wanted to go alone. So Gabby's Gabby was left with two options: stay at home or take the trip solo. Uh, with two award-winning books, I think we know what option uh, she took. So let's talk <laughs> about the story. Uh, on June 28th, 2017, you found out that your husband of a year and a half had, was having an affair with a 19-year-old for six months. I guess like the, and like this, I'm sure you've been asked this. So like, I'm not trying to ask a riveting question here, but the burning question is, how did you find out? So it's interesting because... It's only in the first two to three chapters of Eat, Pray, FML. Um, It's not at all what the whole story and journey is about. Unfortunately, the guy after is the one that really shattered my freaking heart. But, um, and I remember when I was writing the book, I went to dinner with one of my girlfriends and was like, you know, I'm just putting in there, you know, that he cheated and I got a divorce and then all this stuff happened. And she was like, no, No. Gabrielle, (laughs) that was like an episode of CSI. You have to write about that. Like people need to know like how everything was uncovered. So I do detail all of it in the book. Um, but more or less he was sloppy and went out of town and I was in our office Uh, that we shared getting stuff out of the filing cabinet and the computer started going ding, ding, ding. And I went over to look at it and it was Uber receipts from where he was supposed to be in Florida going Mm. to Miami. And that was enough for me to be like, okay, let's, uh, let's, let's look a little further. Um, and then it just put on that Sherlock Holmes hat real quick. (laughs) Yeah. Which so many women identify with and they're like, Mm. yeah, you know, you want to find someone to have a woman like yeah. go into their <laughs> PI mode. Um, and it really just started to unravel from there. It, it was a wild couple weeks of finding different pieces of evidence that like put things together and second phones and yeah. trips that I had no idea about. I mean, it was deep and dirty. <laughs> the kicker for me was the fake name. And then you using that as his character's name in the book. I was like, yeah, that's when I knew I wanted you on this show. I was like, she's got <laughs> it. <laughs> you know, it was the name that he booked to all of the hotels under. He had his second phone listed under it. I believe, um, for a while he even lied to the girl and told her that that was his name. Yeah. Um, and so when I was writing the book and I decided to change everybody's names, I'm like, might as well make it Daniel. Yeah, I mean, that was the easy one. He was doing the work for you at that right, point. Right, right. You can't, I mean, it's like, you can't write it. 
but right. you can't, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you, but you did. <laughs> but so, and for the listeners who haven't read the book, how quickly from the divorce, I don't want to get into the sloppiness of the divorce. That's really not what this book is about, but uh, did you meet the new man? So I had been unhappy in my marriage for like six or seven months, mm-hmm. which now knowing how long the affair lasted makes a ton of sense. But Adds at the up, time yeah. I, I didn't know why. And we were going to therapy and I was working my ass off to try and really get us back to a place of happiness. Mm. And, but I, I, there was, even before I found out about the affair, there was an urge to break free from the marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, if he hadn't have done something so drastic, it would have taken me a lot longer to find the courage to do that after we had said vows and made this commitment and had right. this big wedding. Um, I had a lot of guilt around that. And I found out about the affair and filed for divorce, did all the things and was still in the house for two weeks while he was on vacation. Um, And it was probably the hardest two weeks of my life Mm -hmm. with the anxiety, trying to keep up the facade that everything was fine and not telling people because I didn't want him to get wind that I had filed. Um, And then he came home, I left the house and there was another two weeks that went by before the next guy entered the uh, entered the scene. Um, so it was about, it was about a month after I found out about the cheating, but that was, that was months and months of being unhappy. Mm -hmm. And I, and I applaud to like, just the having to tell everyone that everything's fine. Like that's, that is its own battle in and of itself, whether it's, you're going through a divorce, you're going through a rough patch in life general, like things aren't going well at work having to, and then go out with your friends on a Friday night and be like, yeah, everything's great. Like, I don't think that gets talked about enough because, yeah, you know, especially now that we're kind of like up on the, I guess the new chapter of the post-pandemic life, like everyone's, you know, getting to see each other again. It's like, well, well how have you been? It's like, you always just want to say like, great, fine. And like, leave right. it at that when you really just want to say, it's been the worst week of my life. I don't even want to be here right now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, it's just something that never gets talked about enough. Yeah. And I think that's so accurate. You know, I, on my podcast, FML talk, I talk a lot about mental health mm-hmm. and really destigmatizing that. And I think it's so important to just really catch yourself even in the little moments like you're talking about day to day when people are like, Oh, how are you? To just mm-hmm. be like, you know what? It's been a week yeah. or like, I'm not fantastic, but yeah. like being honest in saying that, um, to not keep up that facade that everything's fine. Cause nobody's ever just fine all the time. No, absolutely. Not. Those are the weird ones. Those are the crazy. Right. <laughs> Those are the ones you have to like watch out for. Yeah, exactly. But so now you describe this new relationship as kind of a whirlwind whirlwind romance that was a tongue twister there but the one that the fairy tales are all about like how how do you get to an, a point in a relationship where you get convinced to go to europe for a month after a month of dating like i feel like and 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 you can bash me here but like i feel like that's where the millennials are like that's the red flag like, right you know, the, the whole new like everything's a red flag like what yeah, car yeah, yeah. sense is he using totally. that's a red flag <laughs> totally um I just like carnivals and I'm like, Hey, let's go. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so this is the crazy part. Yes. It was a month after me, you know, filing for divorce and knowing that my marriage was over this relationship though. So we had known each other before I met my ex-husband, um, Mm -hmm. and had not spoken for six years. Obviously I was married and all of this life had happened and he had slid into my DMs and was like, Hey, do you want to like go to the beach and hang out? Where have you been? And I was like, funny story. Yeah. Um, but he had always been like the casual 
guy in my life. We had gone on two dates. We went dancing. We made out. He was Latin. He was hot. I was like, yeah, sure. I want to go hang out (laughs) at the beach. Like this is actually perfect for me because you're the one person I've ever been able to be casual with. Right. (laughs) That's the red flag. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So we ended up over the span of five days and it really happened the the second night we went out dancing, um, like fell head over heels in love with each other. And it Mm. was like, oh my God, you know, I want you to meet my family. I want you to come to the wedding I'm going to in a couple of weeks. I want you to like be a part of my life. Um, and that second night that we had gone dancing, he looked at me and he's like, I don't know what to do. I have a month booked in Italy planned. And I was like, well, I would never tell you not to go travel, dude. And he was like, well, no, I I want you to come with me. And of course, of course, I'm like, you're freaking insane. You're out of your head. You're crazy. You were right. You were right. (laughs) You know, like I should have just listened to that gut instinct. But I, a couple days later, he was like, look, I'm really serious. I want you to come with me. And I was like, okay, when are, when are you leaving? And he goes September 4th, which would have been my two-year wedding anniversary. And then I go, okay, well, when are you coming home? And he says, October 4th, which is my late father's birthday. So at this point, I'm like, okay, universe, I hear you. I get the the signs. Like, okay. (laughs) Um, Now, I talk about this a lot on my show. Now I I am aware of the terms like love bombing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I now can look back on that and see that that was happening. Although I do want to clarify, for those that don't know, that are listening, that don't know what love bombing is, Um, I have a whole episode of it on my show, but it's when you enter into a relationship and I love you's come very fast. It's like, they want to be with you all the time. It's constant communication. I want you to meet my family. Like, this is like, you know, they really like throw themselves into your world and it becomes like zero to 100 really quickly. Now there's two, two ways. I believe that this happens. I think there's one that's done by a narcissist that's intentional to really like pull you in and like get you in their grasp. And there's one that's done by someone that's subcon it's subconscious and it's someone who's hurt and trying to fill a void within themselves. And they, they fall, they fall for you. And they're like, Oh my God, this is filling my void. I feel so much better. This is, this must be my person. Like I want so much of them in my life because it feels so good but nobody can fill that void for you. And eventually it's going to not work. And so when they realize that and they start feeling those old feelings again, they bolt and you are left at the height of the honeymoon stage, just being like, what's going on? And why is my heart bleeding out of my chest? Right. Right. Absolutely. Would you say then that you were a victim of love bombing and in turn sort of love bombing yourself maybe even if like if all this were going and like you just went through a divorce a crazy story you know and and here you are like falling in love i i mean it just kind of sounds like the two were kind of doing it to each other there you know i i i get how you could put it that way i think when people read the book it kind of becomes clear i really did fall for that man. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it, it took me a very long time, which people read in the sequel to recover <laughs> from that relationship. Yes. And everyone's like, Oh, he was your rebound. I'm like, guys, I wish yeah. he was my rebound. Like right. it would have been so much easier. My ex-husband, I was like, okay, bye. Thanks. Good to good. nice. Uh, six years we spent together, but right. like this person, it, it was a different type of connection. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I would say, yes, I was a victim of love bombing, but knowing what I know now, would I see signs differently? Absolutely. Right. 
Right. And so leading up to the trip and just two days before you're supposed to take off, he literally hits you with like a, yo, I'm, I'm, I'm going to fly solo. No, no pun intended. Yeah. Like, was it, was it that brief of a conversation? I no, mean, like, I, no, I, yeah. of course not. Right. Um, no. So he lost his brother to suicide a year and a half before he and I connected. And the way he presented it to me was that obviously it was very hard and traumatic, but that he had done a lot of healing and kind of recovered as much as you can from a situation like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and a week before we were supposed to leave, he started telling me about this like overwhelming grief he had coming up around this. And the way that he had explained it was like, I fell in love with you and kind of like opened up the floodgates of my emotions. And so everything that I pushed down started coming up mm. and I could tell something was off, but like, I've dealt with a ton of grief in my life. You know, right. we've covered losing my father. I lost my high school sweetheart in a car accident at 18. Like it, I'm like, I've had tea with grief too yeah. many times to freaking yeah. count. <laughs> and so I was trying to really be there for him and walk him through all of it as much as I could. And I, it, I could tell that things were different. Like we had been on this month and a half high of like meeting each other's families and like all of his friends and family was like, this is the one he's never been like this. Like his mom was already like, you're my daughter-in-law. Like it was very intense you're, you're at the hometowns fronts. in the bachelorette right beyond beyond <laughs> we're, we're on the overnights and the hometowns yeah, yeah. and yeah. like it's the final the fucking rose yeah. except he's like hi i can't give you this rose i'm actually going to europe by myself right. um so it was two, two 48 hours before we were going and we had a really tough phone call and i was just like i just feel like something's off and he was like i i just feel like i have to go by myself and broke oh. up with me and i was sitting on my bed and i was like well you can either stay home and be heartbroken and watch him gallivant around Europe. Right. That's not an option. So no. I guess I'm going on a solo trip. We're going to take a quick break from this week's interview to talk about our new sponsors over at Beam. Guys, I want to talk to you a little bit about protein powder. I have been doing protein powder on and off for probably close to 10 to 12 years. Like when it first came out or when I first started using it, it tasted like absolute chalk. Like vanilla is, in my opinion, superior to chocolate in a lot of things, and I'm going to get hate for that. But vanilla protein powder was just not it. And what was so crazy to me was during those 12 years of on and off using protein powder, it all tasted like chalk. There was no advancements until Beam came along. That's right, guys. I have been partnering with Beam for quite some time now. They have been helping me with my fitness transformation, what, whatever you want to call it, but they really helped me out with my marathon. A couple things. One with pre-workout. I want to say this, pre-workout was something that I was a little skeptical about, but when I would come home from work and have to get on the treadmill to go run eight, nine, 10 miles, I didn't want to do that. No one in their sane mind would want to do that. So a little half scoop of the pre-workout, I like the rainbow candy or the pink lemonade, and I was good to go. But it wasn't like jittery 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 crash it was pure energy throughout the entire run i then come home get a nice scoop of their vanilla soft serve pre-workout and man the chalkiness is gone guys i can't kid you enough you got to go try this out for yourself so what we're doing for you guys is we're going to get you guys 10 percent off on your order you're going to use the code jared at youcanbeam.com when you check out again use the code jared j-e-r-o-d at youcanbeam.com they have a plenty of types of products, whether you want super greens, whether you want pre-workout, whether you want whey protein, 
vegan protein, you name it. They've got it with unbelievable flavors. So head over to youcanbeam.com, use code Jared, J-E-R-O-D at checkout to get 10% off. Now back to the interview. Absolutely. So what does, what does one do? Like you made this decision and like, obviously you're going through two different broken hearts, two different situations all in the same year, but like you touched down in Europe. Like what's your plan? I didn't have one. The only plan in place was that my girlfriend from high school lives in London. So that was like my starting point at least. At least you got a um, home base. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, I had no time to plan and I'm such a planner. So this was so out of my comfort zone. I mean, the only thing I knew about hostels on my plane right over was that there was a horror movie about them and people get brutally murdered in it. So this was like, what do you mean? I'm going to go stay in hostels by myself right. with a freaking backpack. Like what? Yeah. <laughs> this is like very not, not in my, my comfort zone. And so I started in London and I wouldn't book my next location until I was in whatever city I was in. So mm. a couple of days into London, I was like, let's do Amsterdam next and booked my travel to Amsterdam and then would be there. And I'd be like, okay, let's get a train to Paris. Like right. it was very, just fly by the seat of my pants, wherever the wind blew me. <laughs> and it was really freeing in a sense, because I didn't have set plans to, you know, I didn't have to like appease anybody it was just like where I wanted to go and explore I met someone in Amsterdam who invited me to go to Mykonos like Uh, you can like kind of just bop around and do whatever you want and it's really freeing in a sense yeah without giving too much of the book away did you have a favorite memory or a place that you visited from this trip yeah Barcelona definitely (laughs) (laughs) like everyone I talked to yeah everyone I talked to my one of my best friends from home she studied abroad in Barcelona oh nice we'll put air quotes around studied abroad but you know partied abroad yeah partied abroad she like she like vows that she's gonna go back she has to go back and and like now I feel like I have to go yeah. Something in me tells me I have to go. My, on, my- on each of my solo trips, there's been one place that has really captured my heart. And I was like, I could legitimately move here and be happy living here. And on the Eat, Pray, FML trip, Barcelona was that place. And I even felt before when I was trying to like figure out where I was going to go, or maybe I want to see this, or maybe I want to go here. Barcelona was like calling me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found it so interesting that the group of people I fell in with there and like the healing that happened there was really a big, big part of my journey. And as someone who has never been to Europe, what's your first recommendation? Oh God. Um, <laughs> that's such a broad question. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, I don't know how broad to be. I've never been to Europe. <laughs> I mean, I really, I think everybody in their life should solo travel as at some point, no matter how old you are, how scared you are to do it. It's so life-changing and so freeing. Um, so I really think that going and picking your first destination city and then deciding where you want to go after that, um, is a really amazing way to experience Europe for sure. Absolutely. And while I, I know you mentioned this when you started writing the book, as soon as you got to London, while you were there, did it seem like everything was just flowing pen to paper or like, were you still trying to figure out like, again, how to navigate Europe solo and have no plans and not know what a hot, like where to, you know, how to navigate a hostel and all that stuff. But like when you decided to write the book, like, was it just, everything was just coming to the paper pretty easily? Yeah, it was really like my therapy. So I bought a leather-bound journal the As day people before. who go to Europe do, yes. Right, per usual. <laughs> per usual. Um, 
uh, the day before I left on my trip and the first day I was in London, I started writing and it's not like I was journaling and then came home and turned it into a book. Like if you open that journal, it's like chapter one and it's, oh, wow. okay. it's very close to how the published version ended up. Um, and it was really like my therapy. I mean, yes, of course, as you'll read, I partied, I met people, I, you know, I cried, <laughs> I did all the things I saw all the sites, but there were days where I would sit in cafes or sit in, you know, the, the Airbnb I stayed in Amsterdam and write for five, six hours or take eight hour train rides and write the whole way there. It, it was like pouring out of me. Um, and I think there's something really therapeutic about physically writing things out as opposed to typing and deleting because you're, it's coming from your, your conscious and your subconscious out your body. And it's this like weird release that you don't realize is happening, but that book is what got me through 2017. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, but when you come back to the States, right? Like the, the self honeymoon's over, right? Yeah. Like you're not in Europe anymore. You're like, it's almost like you're back to where you were right before you left for the trip. You're a different person clearly, yeah. but now you have this book where you like, crap like if i publish this everyone's gonna know literally everything no there was never a moment where i was like crap comma there was the <laughs> second thought there it was more about like well comma now everybody's uh, okay. gonna know everything because i there was never a question in my mind if i was gonna publish it i knew in my heart it, you know everybody's always like everything happens for a reason i'm a yeah. huge believer in that but sometimes you can't see it until you're a little more removed I knew the second he told me he was had to go by himself, I was like, well, this is the universe's clear way of making me go face what I've been carrying with me since my dad died. And that's the fear of being alone. And wow. here we go across the world to go heal it. And so I knew whatever was going to come on that trip was going to be big and it was going to help other people heal through their heartbreaks and grief and their journeys. Um, but yeah, the self honeymoon phase is real. And mm -hmm. I came home and it was like the carousel stopped. Yeah. There was no more travel. There was no, you know, I, it was, and I, it, it hit me hard. And the second book, The Ridiculous Misadventures of a Single Girl, literally starts the second I walk in from the plane ride home to Europe. So it picks up right where Eat, Pray, FML leaves off. So it fully continues, but it was definitely a, a slap upside the head of like, oh, okay, you're home now yeah. and you're 20, 28 and you're divorced and you're living at your mother's house. <laughs> right. Right. But I mean, at least you have this book. Like, I feel right. like for me, that's, that's probably like what would be like, at least I have this. Yeah. Like, that all was, this, all this crap has happened and that's, that's the past, but right yeah. here, right now I have this book. No. And that's what kept me grounded through writing. It was my therapy and then having it when I came home and knowing that that was the next to do in my life right. was, was everything for me. Absolutely. So now your mother has also written three novels centered around self-help. And I don't mm -hmm. want to necessarily deem Eat, Pray, FML as a self-help novel, maybe more of a self-love novel than anything. But did you ever, did the two of you ever sit down at like, we'll just say the Thanksgiving table because we're just past Thanksgiving and kind of laugh at how these paths have somehow crossed eventually? I actually just brought her on for an episode of FML Talk and we did get into that because a lot of the stuff that she teaches, this is, this is her words, not mine. She, <laughs> she will say, you know, Gabrielle teaches what I teach in a way that people can hear and understand it um, in that. like a, in, in a, in a younger way. Right. Um, 
and, and some, you know, not everything is the same, but like, I grew up in a spiritual household with, with her, her healing work kind of guiding me through life. So I think when, when I sat down to write the book, I wasn't intending it to be a self help book necessarily. I think you're right in category, categorizing it like that. It definitely is. You just don't realize it is because it feels like you're reading a fun Netflix show. And then you're like, oh, but I'm also healing because she's healing and all of this is resonating with me. And like this, you know, it's always, I feel easier to open up and heal when it's not someone telling you what to do. When they're like, hey, this is what I went through and look at how I handled it and look at these things that came up for me and that you can then connect with that and resonate with that. It's kind of like a safer, more enjoyable space to heal. Right. And like, I feel like that's the whole reason why we pick up a book in the first place. Like, yeah. Right. Oh, looks cool. Like the back, the cover, the, you know, like the back cover, I read it, it looks great. But like, I want this book to do something for me or, you know, help solve a problem that I'm having might not be all the answers, but like, yeah. I want it to resonate with something that I'm going through because I can't tell everyone it all the time, or I don't know how to put it into words. So yeah, I don't know. I feel like that's part of the reason why we pick up a book in the first place. Totally. And I think that I have two kinds of readers from what I've come to know. Um, <laughs> the ones that have, it's been recommended by other people and they're like, this book changed my life. You should read this. Um, and then there's the ones that see the fun TikTok videos and are like, Ooh, this feels like a fun read. I have so many people that are like, I never read. I never read. And I read this book in three days. Um, and then those are the people that pick it up because because it looks entertaining or like they loved the cover or they loved the synopsis. And then they're like, oh my God. And then I was crying halfway through and this book totally changed my life. So it's yeah. like, okay, great. Either everyone, way. Everyone comes to that first happy. person. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So what I, I, I read an interview uh, with you. What were her thoughts of the book? What were your mom's thoughts? I read that she, she read it twice. Yes. What were her first and maybe second thoughts of the okay. book? So she, she read it the first time in it's like vomit draft form if you will, before I worked with an editor, okay. you know, it was just like, which again, it was, she read the, close. she read the leather journal pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Um, the typed out version of the leather journal, but right. it was, it was still not so much changed in editing. It was just kind of like refined from there on. But yeah. the first time she read it, she came in and she's like, God, Gabrielle, are you sure you don't want to change your name or take out one of the guys you've slept with on this journey? <laughs> and I was like, okay, first of all, I just got slut shamed by my mother. So that's a problem. That's a second first all, too. <laughs> yeah. I was like, but second of all, no mom, I think that putting out all of the stuff that really happened in the way that it happened and the stuff that I'm not super proud of and the stuff that I am really proud of and putting out all of it authentically in a no bullshit way yeah. without sugarcoating it is what is going to allow people to connect with it. Because so often books that are published through big companies, it's like, you know, I, even when we shopped Eat, Pray, FML to big companies, they were like, mm, we kind of want to tone it down a little bit or like shorten it here. And I was like, no, that's not what people need. People need to feel like they're sitting down with their girlfriend and having a glass of wine and hearing this insane story. Mm. Um, and you don't get that by toning it down or taking out some of the curse words or, you know, taking out one of the, the men. Um, so she was a little, I think she was, it it came from a place of fear because she wanted to protect her daughter, obviously. And I totally understand that. Um, the second time she read it was when it was in its full published paperback form. 
And she called me in tears and said, I was just doing a session because she's a, apart from an author and an actress, she's a world healer and does private sessions with people all over the world. She was like, I just finished doing a session with one of my clients and they were so frustrated because they were trying to work on self-love and couldn't figure out how to do that. And I was trying to help them the best I could, but I couldn't give them clear directions on how to really practice that. And then I sat down and had 20 pages left to read in your book. And the answer for my client was in my daughter's book. Um, and she was just like in tears and beside herself. And it was a really sweet moment. <laughs> Going back to that first point of how, you know, you have the words to how your mother teaches, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So I, on the topic of self-love, how would Gabrielle Stone define self-love? I always thought self-love meant you're able to look in a mirror and be like, I love you, Gabrielle. <laughs> but every time I did that, I felt freaking crazy and was like, right. this is not, this, this can't be the thing. And, you know, everybody always says you have to love yourself first. You got to love yourself before you love anyone else. It's the key to everything, yada, yada, yada. I was like, okay, cool, guys. I'm, I'm ready to do that. Can anyone tell me how? Yeah. And no one was like, Coming Here's up with recipe. any answers. Yeah. Right, like, right. Yeah. So that's what I was searching for on this trip. And I I found it kind of when I came back um, and had to pull myself out of that um, getting off the carousel and, and falling into kind of that little bit of depression. Right. And I call it the self-love cocktail because, <laughs> of course, I have to equate it to some type of froofy drink. <laughs> and it's really simple. You sit down and you write out a list of things that you're capable by yourself of giving your soul that makes you happy. So nothing you need from a significant other or an outside source. Like what can you do daily that makes your soul happy? So for me, my list was meditating, dancing, creating, going to the gym, eating healthy writing. And I put that list on my mirror and was like, okay, you have to give yourself two of these things every single day. And I committed to doing that for a couple weeks. And the, the more I did it, the easier it became. And then it was like, okay, then I'm going to add a couple more of the ingredients from my list until I was doing all of these things daily that my soul really loved and made my soul happy. And I woke up a couple months later feeling so drastically better. And it was because I was loving myself. And I think when people realize that loving yourself is as simple as giving your soul the things it loves, it will totally be a game changer for them. Because when you think of being in a relationship or a mother-daughter relationship or a friendship, any type of relationship that you have in your life, if you're trying to make that person feel loved, you do things for them, how they experience love. Mm -hmm. So then when you're talking about self-love, why would you not do the same principle for yourself? Absolutely. And I feel like going off that, like that list that you made, someone will see that maybe today and be like, oh, she's doing a me day. Like, why do we have to do it in a day? Why do we right. have to, why does it have to be one day? Why aren't we doing this every single day? Right, if, like, no. Like, don't you get that great feeling after your me day or your treat yourself day to use the Parks and Rec, uh, you know, analogy? Like, yeah. why don't you, we do that all day, all day, every day? Like, I get yeah. it. Like, you, you want to make time for other people. Like, don't like be so self-absorbed that you're not even communicating with others. But like, Something as easy as I really love reading, so I can read 10 pages a day or yeah. like meditating for 15 minutes. Like how exactly. hard is that to do? 
exactly. Like there's enough hours in the day to like sprinkle in a little things that you're going to love yourself. And like, look, it doesn't have to be five things a day, every day. If you're depressed, yeah, try and do as many of those things as you can. But like on a day-to-day basis, like one or two, just give yourself a little bit of that love back that you're showing to everybody else. Absolutely. My version of self-love. I just have to bring up the email that you sent me before this recording because I thought it was so funny. You like, it was, I don't know, like two hours ago, three hours ago, you emailed me. You're like, Hey, like for the video, like this is just going on your Instagram. Right. And I was like, yeah, like, but you're like, I just didn't want to put on makeup. And I was like, please, this is the, like the no judgment of appearance podcast that you'll ever be on. The title is normal guy lazy. I can't even look into the camera. I love it. But like, I, you know, I, I equate self-love to, I, I, a lot of it has to do with this show. Like people always ask me like, how are you so confident with your lazy eye? I never thought that I would get more DMs about my lazy eye for, from this show than the people that are on this show. Like I've done 65 episodes with incredible guests, incredible stories. And the most DMs I get are about my lazy eye. And it's just like, it's parents of kids who have lazy eyes. It's kids Aww. who have lazy eyes. And it's so it's eye-opening to me because, right. (laughs) But like, it's, it's you, you have to make it you. I was having a great conversation with another content creator. Her name's Christine snaps about like, she wants to start her own podcast. Doesn't know what to make it about. And everyone that says start a podcast. And I'm sure you heard this too. You have to have your niche. Mm. You have to have something that you're going to bring in or draw in a specific audience. And then that audience will grow with you. Right. But I was like, that's bullcrap because I, I like the things that I knew before this show were swimming and and swimming. So like, I don't want to do a 52 week episode podcast talking about swimming. I'll hate that after that. Yeah. So for me, it was, you are your own niche. And I think like, I don't think people talk about that enough, but everything about this show is the guest is so different. The guests have different stories, but you're always going to hear from me. So if you can like this show enough because you like me, the host, then I'm good with that. And maybe that's a little bit like self-entitled and a little bit of entitlement, no. but, <laughs> but I just no, feel like- I think that's amazing. And I think like, I did hate the sound of my voice, you know, the first 10 episodes into this thing. And now it's like, you know what? Sometimes something is better than nothing. And in some cases, you know, done is better than perfect. So put something out there and see what, see what sticks, I guess. Yeah. And I think in today's world with all the bullshit that's out there, people just want someone that's authentic you know, and like not going to put on that layer of bullshit that's has become the toxic level of social media. I mean, we do for my podcast, we do happy hour every Wednesday when the the episode airs on Instagram live. There's so many times where I get on there looking like this and I'm like, welcome (laughs) back to another episode of Gabrielle does not give a shit what she looks like on the internet. Let's go. (laughs) Like, I just don't have the time or energy to keep like, you know, it's all society pressure and, and bullshit that people put on us. So it's mm-hmm. like, why are we even doing it? There's times where I want to look a certain way. And if I want to do that for myself, great. But like, damn sure do way too many interviews to like have makeup on for every single one of them. Come on guys. <laughs> <laughs> I, like I said in the beginning, I'm going to make this like a personal token that you chose that this was the one that you did. Yes. And like, I'll take I have that graced as a you with the naked face. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. But so you, like we've obviously brought up, you did have, you, you have now dipped your toes into podcasting. You've been doing FML talks for about a year now. Was that like always a plan? I Was it like, you always wanted to do a podcast after the books or was it just kind of, it fell into place here? 
I never wanted to do a podcast. Um, I had been getting lovingly, I say this lovingly, berated yeah. by my readers from you know, the first month that the book came out to do yeah. a podcast. And I was like, everybody has a podcast. What am I going to talk about? Hello. Like, yeah. they're freaking everywhere. I was just like, it was not, I was not into it. And I had also been a guest on so many of them with like all the press for the book that it just like was not appealing to me at all. And I think it was in the midst of the pandemic, my best friend messaged me and was like, look, dude, like, you should really do this. I will produce it for you. Like, what do oh. you have to lose? And I was like, okay, fine. And I thought, you know, like maybe a thousand, fifteen hundred people from my like book fan base will come over and like, I don't know, maybe it'll grow a little bit. Yeah. I had no idea like how it was going to take off. The fact that we're already a year in now is insane to me. We just started season three and people find us from different outlets like mm -hmm. that haven't even read the book yeah. and are just like I love the podcast and they're starting season two and now they're just buying the book and I'm like oh that never even occurred to me that people would funnel in from the other podcast world um but one thing that I'm really proud of in the podcast land is that I've created a space for people to really have like a therapy hour and really feel like they're healing and, and able to do that in a fun, as fun as it can be, um, safe place. You right. know what I mean? Um, and I get to expand on so many other topics that I didn't get to cover in the book, um, or go more into detail on some of those topics. And it's been, it's been really rewarding, you know, because I'm, I get so many DMs about the book um, of how it's like affected people's lives and changed people's lives or saved them from abusive relationships or ended up like fixing their marriage or whatever, what have you. Mm. And now I get those about the podcast episodes too. So it really allows me to feel like what I'm doing has a purpose and is helping people. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with social media. So that aspect of getting that response from my readers and my listeners and the people that are now like a part of this community that I've built really makes me feel like it's okay to, um, you know, be doing stupid ass TikTok dances on, on apps and whatnot. <laughs> if it wasn't for that TikTok dance, we wouldn't be here today, you know? You know, that <laughs> video, I literally woke up one morning, had the idea for it, took my dog in the backyard. It took that was me five minutes to shoot and like put the text on it. Yeah. It's everywhere. I mean, everywhere. it's been on news outlets in the UK and in Israel. Like it's been wild to see how that one stupid 15 second video blew up. And you're like, um, go buy my book. <laughs> Like the, well, whole, the whole story is in the book. You the know? whole, that's the whole, the only reason I'm on TikTok, except for like, you know, I'll post videos about like self-love and trying yeah. to like help educate people on different yeah. aspects of what I've learned on my journey. The only reason I'm on that app is to sell the book. And yeah. <laughs> I don't feel bad about that because I know when people buy the book, they get so much out of it and they'll heal from it. So it's like, you know, I'm not in the creator fund or any of those things. Like I'm literally just on it to have those videos go viral and sell books and it works. It's been the biggest marketing tool I've had in the last two years. I mean, 57 million people. That's insane. 
Insane. Yeah. Absolutely insane. So uh, you talked about it a little bit about your podcast. FML Talks gets into some big, big topics like narcissism, mental health, abandonment, and much more. Have there been one or two takeaways in those first two in, in your, as you're building up season three here that you've taken from your show that have really stuck with you? I hate asking like, what's your favorite interview or like, what was your yeah. favorite episode, but like maybe the two or three big things that you've taken. Yeah. So the premiere of season three, which was two weeks ago, um, I had a guest on, his name's Christopher McNeely. And he opened up about his history with his stepfather, sexual abuse, um, and really like how his sexuality was, you know, crafted, I guess, or mm. inferred by, by what he went through. And it was such a beautiful interview to see a man get up there and be so openly vulnerable. Um, I, one of the things that I'm really working on this season is to bring on some really strong, powerful, yet vulnerable and very healed men, because I think so often our society gets into that toxic masculinity of like, be a man and Hello. Yeah. don't cry and like all this bullshit. And it's, you know, because of things like that, that's why I have a bunch of triggered men in my comment section on TikTok, like spewing oh. off some insane shit because uh. they haven't been able to have a safe place to be vulnerable and heal. And I'm trying to change that one step at a time. Gabrielle, when I was doing my uh, research yeah. for this interview, I like almost wanted to throw my monitor off of like, my fifth story apartment building in Boston. It's I was, unbelievable. I, like, like what? <laughs> There's, there's such thing as like haters comments and like, yeah, you can hide behind a screen, but these are just so, these are just ignorant, uh, uneducated and just downright dumb. Yeah, I can't but it's even... also like, you know, first of all, who raised yeah. these people? Where, where are your Second parents? of all, yeah. you know, that if they were ever standing in front of me, they would never no. be able to say something like that. And it's so toxic in the sense of like, oh, well, you must've not been, you know, sucking dick at home or sorry i don't know if i can like talk like this on the show fine, but it's fine. Uh, and like you know <laughs> this is wrong with you and like you know you look like a you you know like calling names and like judging my body and i'm like it's just wild that like hey. people have the audacity to think that they should share their opinions it, you know it, it's mm. it's wild and then they also don't realize that the more they comment that stuff the more that's blowing that video up yeah. Hello. So it's like, okay, guys. Yeah. I mean, come on, continue. No, the, <laughs> that's what I've, we've talked about that on the show. Like as much as it's a, a horrible engagement and I never want to read it, it did make an engagement and more people are now going to see it. So yep. thank you. Yeah. You've done your job. Yep. Welcome <laughs> but, to TikTok. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I always say like, when you say like, they would never be able to say that to my face. Like I always just say they'd never even be able to look me in the eye and tell me that. So right. literally and figuratively. So. <laughs> love it. Oh my God. I love it so much. We have plenty of lazy eye <laughs> jokes here on the show. <laughs> That's great, dude. <laughs> but so we have one final question for you. First of all, Gabrielle, this has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for coming on. And I don't know how to ask this one. We ask it for all of our guests, but okay. Epre FML is, I don't want to call it an autobiography, but it is your story. It is, you know, from your yeah, perspective. Yeah, it's a memoir. It's a memoir. But if you were to write at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, and you have plenty more to do, so this isn't like your obituary, but if you were to write your autobiography today, what would be the title of it and why? Oh my God. <laughs> that is, that's an interesting question for someone that's written too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, probably 
from heartbreak to healed if I was writing it now. I love that. Yeah. That's an, like, I've, I've had two authors on the show. Both have written amazing memoirs and I've always been like, okay, I, I know you have a great story. I know, but I just, it's like a formality now. I've had, I've done it for 65 episodes. I have to I ask love it. No, and then also we're like, but do I say the title? What if I want to use that title in the sense? So if anyone hears this, you're not granted permission to use it's, that title. <laughs> it's so funny. That's exactly how I think everyone thinks this question. Like it, it has to be set in stone. This has to be your title. Right. Like, it's something like a, it's like just a mental block that you get when they when someone asks you that question that it's like so concrete that there's no going back from it. Right. Right. <laughs> such, a, such a writer brain thing to do. too. <laughs> awesome. Well, Gabrielle, this has been, like I said, an absolute blast. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing more of your story. If you do not go buy this book after this interview, I will personally come in and uh, have a couple words to say. But thank you again <laughs> so, so much. I've, I've had an absolute blast. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for having me on. This is great. Awesome. We'll keep in touch. So a big thank you to Gabrielle Stone for coming on this week's episode to tell her incredible story behind Eat, Pray, FML. Like I said at the end of the interview, I encourage you all to go check out this book because it is by far more than just an incredible and crazy wild story. You're definitely going to get that with Gabrielle Stone's book, but you're going to get way more than that, a lot more life lessons and just really how to self-love. I hope you got that from this week's podcast as well. I'm going to leave links to all things Gabrielle in the description of this week's podcast, easy ways for you guys to go buy the book and all that fun stuff. I'm also going to link our beautiful Instagram. You're going to go see clips from this incredible interview over there at normal guy, lazy eye on Instagram over there is also where you can see the normal guy, lazy eye merch guys. We just dropped these brand new quarter zips with the normal guy, lazy eye logo on it. And like, I don't want to say they're business professional, but I mean, dang, like if you wear that on a Zoom call, you look pretty good. Anyways, all that's going to be in the description of this week's podcast. Go check it out there. One thing that I do want to note here at the end of this episode today, uh, as we're recording this, it is December 7th. You're probably listening to this uh, on December 8th or beyond, but uh, December 7th is the anniversary of the attacks on Pearl Harbor today. December 7th, 2021 is the 80th year anniversary. It's incredible uh, the sacrifices that these men and women made to make sure that we are free today. And something like the attacks on Pearl Harbor that has now been so long ago in history, it's really sad that um, unfortunately a lot of these survivors are being erased from memory, erased from history. Um, so that being said, we have a one-of-a-kind interview uh, for next week's episode with someone that has done an incredible, incredible feat to honor the 2,403 individuals that lost their life uh, during the attacks on Pearl Harbor. More to come on that next week, but that does it for this week's show. Thank you guys so much for all of your support, and I will see you all next Wednesday.